How's your teaching calling going? Have you ever asked a question during the second hour and suddenly everyone is looking at the carpet in silence? There are proven methods to stimulate class discussion that work like a charm. David Farmsworth does a masterful job presenting on this very subject in the Teaching Saints virtual library. What questions get people talking? How can you effectively listen to the answer they're saying without being distracted of where you want to take the class next? These are crucial principles to consider, especially in this time of Come Follow Me Sunday School. You can watch David Farnsworth's presentation by visiting leadingsaints.org slash 14. There, you can gain free access for 14 days to the Teaching Saints virtual library, where you'll find hours and hours of content to help you be a better prepared Sunday teacher. Hey, welcome to the Leading Saints podcast. Now, for many of you that are brand new uh, to Leading Saints, it's important that you know that Leading Saints is a nonprofit organization, 501c3, dedicated to helping Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead. And we do that through content creation. We get so much positive feedback on the podcast, our virtual conferences, the articles on our website. You definitely got to check it out at leadingsaints.org. And on their homepage at leadingsaints.org, you can actually find the top six most downloaded episodes to the podcast. So if you're new, like the content, want to jump in to some of our most popular episodes, head there after you listen to this episode. As many of you know, I'm an avid BYU football fan, season ticket holder pretty much my whole life. And so I always feel blessed when I have a former BYU Cougar on the podcast with me. And I have the opportunity to interview Pastor Derwin Gray, who is a former BYU Cougar, played for the football team in the late 80s, early 90s. There was some glory years of BYU fandom. I hope they come back soon. And he has such a remarkable story of a path that led to Jesus Christ and now him being a pastor of Transformation Church in South Carolina. He had a successful career in the NFL, and uh, that's where he was put on a path to become a pastor. And his story is inspiring for sure. Now, I want to get uh, Pastor Derwin on the podcast to just explore his experience, not only with leadership, but, you know, with the the touches of the church that he had uh, attending BYU, learning about the gospel, even before he was really religious, and how that has influenced his life currently, things he learned from Coach Lavelle Edwards to the other coaching staff, and uh, how he leads in his church. And I think you'll appreciate many things he says. He does say some things that you'll probably disagree with, and that's okay. You know, we can have conflicting views on the Leading Saints podcast, and we can handle it, right? So don't let that take you out. Listen to his wise words of leadership and how he leads, and uh, especially how he offers transformation through Jesus Christ to those he leads. And we could do that more and more. So here's my interview with Pastor Derwin Gray. Today, I'm with Pastor Derwin Gray. How are you? I'm doing good. How are you, good sir? Very good. Well, I'm excited. This has been on my list for a while to to track you down and and get you on the Leading Saints podcast. I'm glad we we figured it out and and got here. Now, you've got such a unique experience, especially as a pastor. How do you describe, like when someone says, what do you do? Or or you're a pastor, what's that about? How do you respond to it? (laughs) Wow. You know what? That is a, that's a complex question. So I want to make it simple. Okay. What I do as a pastor is this, is number one, as a pastor, I am called to first and foremost to allow the love of Jesus to transform me so I can serve his people specifically at the local church called Transformation Church. And the way I serve our people is number one, the preaching and teaching of the gospel. Number two, 
casting vision for where I believe God wants us to go as a church on mission with him. Number three, leading and shepherding our staff. We have a staff of about 50 people. And so their spiritual well-being, their ministry competency is of great importance of me. And then I'm called to guard the flock because there are wolves. And so that's kind of what I do as a pastor. I also have a calling to equip and train other pastors. That was not my gig. Matter of fact, I didn't want to be a pastor, but God has given us influence. Transformation Church is a church that is relentlessly focused on Jesus and his grace. And as a result of that, we are a multi-ethnic church. And so you see every nation, tribe, and tongue. And so we believe that reconciliation to God vertically produces reconciliation to one another horizontally and our love mm-hmm. and unity are signposts that we're Jesus's disciples and that Jesus rose from the dead. So this isn't a job. This is a calling. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Now I want to go, I, I'm intrigued to learn more about your journey. Like you said, you didn't even want to be a pastor. I'm, I'm intrigued by that story, but let's go way back because you, you played football at Brigham Young University. Where does that story begin? Yeah. So it begins in San Antonio, Texas. My parents were 17 and 19 when I was born. There was talk of God around the house, but we never went to church. We never prayed together. And so the reality was football was my God. In high school, I learned that football could take me to college. So I worshiped football. And the way I Mm. worshiped is I worked hard. I did what I needed to do in school. I played hard. I loved playing. And It afforded me to get a scholarship. I had a choice between Texas Christian University, Kansas State University, and I chose Brigham Young University. (laughs) Yeah, And I chose BYU primarily because Coach Edwards was there. I knew I would play early. I knew I'd get a great education. And then on my recruiting trip, they took me snowmobiling. And as a kid from San Antonio, Texas, who only saw snow one time in his life, (laughs) snowmobiles was it, man. And so- Going to BYU was a vastly different context. You leave a predominantly multi-ethnic space to a predominantly white space, but not just a white space, but Mormon white space. And so that's a whole different cultural context. So it took me about a semester to really adjust. But one of the good things is being in an environment where everybody is so different, you learn to be curious, you learn to ask questions, you learn to learn people. And so that was a blessing. End up meeting a girl on the BYU track team named Vicky. And uh, we've been married as of May 31st for 31 years. Congratulations. Yeah. We have two kids, 26 and 22. So at BYU, everything was going according to plan. Football career was great. She was crushing it. Ended up getting drafted to the Indianapolis Colts. And then that's kind of when the bottom of this world I had constructed began to fall apart. And Mm -hmm. so I get to the NFL, I go from being a big fish in a small pond to being a minnow in the Pacific Ocean. And so God in that time is beginning to wean me from my idolatry of thinking that football is my significance, football is my worth. Mm -hmm. So my third year in NFL, I'm a team captain, I'm playing pretty good. But at the end of that third year, it hits me like, okay, there has to be more to life than just this. Okay, so I've got the money, I've got the girl, I've got the career, but here's what I don't have. I don't have unconditional love. Here's what I don't have. I don't have forgiveness. I don't have grace. 
I can't get over the fact that my father was not involved in my life. And so from 1995 to 1997, I started experiencing injuries. And so basically my life that I had built on sand began to just be wiped away. But I had a teammate who played with the Colts. His name was Steve Grant, but his nickname was the Naked Preacher because literally after practice, he'd take a shower, dry off, wrap a towel around his waist, and he would begin to share his faith. And so one day he asked me like, you know, Jesus. And in my mind, I'm like, do you know you're half naked? This is just really weird. (laughs) But that opened up the door for a five-year conversation where he explained to me that, listen, there's a God that loves you. There's a God that wants to forgive you, that wants to give you a new life. There's a God that wants to give you purpose and significance, that God has revealed himself in Jesus. And as a result of your sin and my sin, we're separated from him, but God wants to break down that wall of separation. And the way he does it is through Christ. And it's all grace that Jesus lives a perfect life that we could never live. So when Matthew 5, 48 says, be perfect like your father and heaven is perfect. Well, Jesus has to be perfect for us because we mm-hmm. can't be even on our best day. Right. And on the cross, Jesus' blood forgives our sin. And on the third day, when he rises again, he comes to live in us now, today, to make us a part of this huge, big global family. But also, he gives us new heart and a new passion and new mind. And so he would share stuff like that with me for five years. And then eventually, August 2nd, 1997, I was in a small dorm room, fifth year in NFL training camp with the Colts. And I called my wife on the phone after lunch and I said, I want to be more committed to you and I want to be committed to Jesus. And that's when I was born again. Wow. That's when I literally knew that I knew, you know, the LDS will say, you know, read, uh, I think it's Moroni 10.9, you'll get a burning in the bosom. Well, it wasn't a burning in the bosom for for me. What it was is you are loved. You are forgiven. And I just, I literally wept for three days. Wow. Three days at night before I'd go to bed, I just weep and I would think, how could Jesus love somebody like me? And the reality is Jesus only has people like me and you to love. That's true. Perfect. We all need grace. And so that was 1997, 1998, came to the Panthers, hurt my knee. And all I could do was study the Bible and rehab my knee. And as I studied the Bible, my passion for Jesus and wanting others to know about him increased. But I grew up as a compulsive stutterer. So the idea of me preaching or being a pastor was foreign. Like I was either going to become a coach, athletic director, or work for like Merrill Lynch or an investment house. But the Lord just began to shape my heart and he began to open up doors for me to go and speak. And I didn't want to go and speak because I wasn't good at it. Mm. And I just sensed God saying, if I can raise my son from the dead, I can raise your tongue to talk. Yeah. But you have to go to see it happen. And so as I would go and speak, God would transform lives. And eventually that led to me going to seminary to work on my master's, to get a doctorate. And then we planted Transformation Church, and we wanted Transformation Church to reflect the New Testament as much as possible. And the New Testament church was centered on Jesus and his grace. It was a multi-ethnic family that loved their enemies, that reached the lost, fed the hungry, and clothed the naked. And uh, for 13 years now, that's what God has graciously done. Yeah. Wow. What a story. Uh, now, at BYU, I mean, obviously there's some religion courses you're required to take. I mean, what was yeah. that experience like with not much of a religious background? I mean, what was it? Uh, did that hit you at all there? Or what? Yeah. So basically, my time at BYU was to stay eligible. Okay. Uh, yeah. So 
I do remember Brother Rotten. He would teach DNC, uh-huh. Doctrine and Covenants, and he would draw these big, perfect circles all the time. I do remember the Gadiant and Robbers. You, you know, so so overall, it was, uh, I mean, it was good and healthy. Mm-hmm. There were two experiences. One of them was negative. It was the Book of Mormon one. And at that time at BYU, so we're talking 1989, 1990-ish, Mm-hmm. The aspect of race comes up. And so, you know, for my LDS friends, there are some deep racial issues in the past that can't be swept under the rug. They literally have to be addressed. Yeah. And so I had caught wind of like, you know, from the book of Abraham, black people are black because of a curse. And that's why they couldn't hold a priesthood and those types of things. And I just remember bringing that up in my book of, book of Mormon class. And I walked out. I said, my black skin is not a curse. And so now looking back all these years later, right, you know, if I knew what I know now, you know, I would point out like, guys, you got to understand the Israelites were not white people. They were Semitic. Mm-hmm. Jesus is not a white guy from Missouri. Like he's from Nazareth. He's a, he's a Jew. Mm-hmm. And when you look at Solomon and you look at David and you look at Moses, like the Christian faith did not start in white mansville. It is a Middle Eastern, North African faith. And then, you know, something that I've lovingly challenged my Latter-day Saint friends with is this. If on April 6th, 1830, God the Father and Jesus appeared to Joseph Smith as white men, it's kind of hard not to start with a white supremacist perspective. Mm. Whereas as a Protestant, we don't believe God is corporeal. We don't believe God has a body. We believe that God is personal, yet an infinite spirit. And we believe that Jesus is a Jew. Mm-hmm. And so, from my perspective, I can't start with a foot of supremacy because God doesn't have a color. And the ultimate color that God cares about is red blood that unifies every nation, tribe, and tongue around Christ. So, but overall, My experiences were pretty good. There was a time where uh, my wife is white and one of my teammates, whom I will not name, who's a Latter-day Saint, said, well, you know that that's that's a sin, that that's that's wrong. Mm. And so, my wife was not LDS. I was not LDS. And we basically said, screw you. If you don't like it, then don't marry us. We didn't. We're not trying to marry you. (laughs) So, but, but yeah. So, now as I look back, Here's the positive contribution that I feel like being at BYU made. Number one, it taught me to learn the story of other people that you love. Mm. So at my home, I have a library and I have, I don't know, I don't know how many books about the LDS faith. I feel like I could explain what it means to be a Latter-day Saint, perhaps better than some Latter-day Saints, because there are people that I love that are Latter-day Saints, like Coach Edwards, Tom Homo, Dick felt like these people impacted my life deeply. Like I'm a huge advocate for BYU. And so when you love somebody, you you don't want to make caricatures of them. We we live in a world now where people love to slander and make caricatures. And so when my friends say things about Latter-day Saints that aren't true, I'm like, hey guys, that's that's not true. Like Mm -hmm. if you're gonna disagree with them, at least know what they believe. 
And then I would say the same for my Latter-day Saint friends. Right. Like if you're going to disagree, at least take the time to actually know what non-Latter-day Saints mean when they say certain certain things. Also, I've always had a deep appreciation for how um, Latter-day Saints will take care of their own, although I would gently challenge and stockpile the billions that are that the LDS church has on hand. I would, as a leader, I would go, man, there's a homelessness and hunger could be done away with, right? Mm-hmm. So, as Latter-day Saints, if I was you guys, I would be pounding on the walls about, but that's just me. You know, thirdly, what I would say is I always appreciated the moral framework of BYU. At 18, 19, not as much, right? But as you look back, you go, man, it's hard to get in trouble at BYU. Like, you got to try <laughs> hard to get in trouble, man. But like, yeah. if you go to, say, the University of Florida, there are bars that line the college, right? Uh-huh. At BYU, man, you got to work hard to get in trouble. <laughs> So, so there, there was a lot of positive things that I took from my time and experience there. Yeah. Tell me about uh, Lavelle Edwards. I've had opportunity to, to interview several of his former players. And unfortunately, I, I didn't uh, get him in for an interview before he passed on. But uh, just from a leadership standpoint, like what are those leadership principles yeah. that uh, come to the surface as you think about, about Coach Edwards? Yeah. So Coach Edwards taught me more about leadership than any book has ever has other than hmm. the Bible. First of all, what Coach Edwards did that was genius that I learned from him was he learned how to surround himself with capable people and he empowered them. So when you think about Coach Edwards and his coaching staff, Norm Chow was there. Norm Chow helped two quarterbacks win the Heisman Trophy. Every year, BYU was nationally ranked in offense. Andy Reid came out of BYU. Bill Billick came out of BYU. Mike Leach came out of BYU. Tom Holmgren came out of BYU. The list can go on and on. Coach Edwards would surround himself around good coaches and then he would delegate and then he would empower them to coach. Now, we all knew he was the man, like we knew he was the head man, but he empowered his staff to do their jobs, Mm. right? He didn't micromanage. Also, Coach Edwards had a witty sense of humor that if you just looked at him, you wouldn't think that he was funny because he always looked like he was mad. But he is legitimately one of the funniest human beings you can ever be around. I remember going into my senior year, went to a uh, booster function together. And as as one of the team leaders, he asked me to come and say a few words. And so he opens up and he goes, are you guys cold? If you're not, you should be. And man, it was, I mean, he just had all these one-liners. And uh, here's something else that a lot of people don't know. I left BYU in 1992 to go to the NFL. Every year from 1993 to 2023, he and Patty Edwards, his wife, sent my wife and I Christmas cards. Oh, wow. Since he's passed away, Patty still sends handwritten Christmas cards. Wow. There's a relationship there, right? Yeah. And leaders have a relationship and they take you to places where you never thought you could go because they see in you what you don't see in yourself. Yeah. Wow. That's fantastic. And, and really thinking in the you know, 2023 
perspective with uh, you know college football, it would be crazy to see a head coach on the sidelines without a headset on. And to think that Coach Edwards was confident enough in his staff to just stand there and watch the game. You know, he didn't need to be on comm and, and hearing all the all the talk there. It's it's amazing. Yeah, so kind of what Coach Edwards did is like halftime adjustments is where he flourished. But it's mm. like we're gonna prepare so well throughout the week that I'm going to let my coaches do what they do. Then in halftime, I'm going to advise them on what they should do or shouldn't do. Yeah. Are there any leadership principles or things, routines, habits that you do? And at this point, I'm sure there's, there's so much life experience, they sort of blend together. But anything that you do that really calls back to that time of being led by Coach Edwards? Delegation, man. Finding and equipping the right people to implement the vision and then championing them to do it. Not being a control freak, not micromanaging, not any of those things. Yeah. And so that's what I really, really learned from him is, man, surround yourself with incredible people, resource them and let them be awesome. Yeah. And and delegation is always something that, uh, you know, lay leaders in our church, I don't know, sometimes struggle with or we get a lot of questions about it. Like, what does that, do any examples come to mind or what does that look like in practice when you're working with your, your staff there? So, okay. So, One of the positive things, and let me look at the positive that I will say about the LDS church, right? You guys are lay led, like you do a great job. And one of the things that I admire is kind of like the bishop is like, hey, uh, you have a calling and God is calling you to serve, you know, in preschool and the conversation's (laughs) over. (laughs) So I do think that level of volunteerism is incredibly helpful and incredibly beautiful right? One of the negative sides of it is you won't have as much detailed expertise for areas that require detailed expertise. Mm -hmm. So, for example, right? So, we have paid staff, but we have over, I mean, we got a couple thousand. We don't use the word volunteers. We use the word servant leaders. The word servant is a Greek word for diakonos or deacon. Deacon means to serve. And so we have servant leaders that serve in every aspect of ministry, but we also have a staff that has a higher level of quote unquote expertise. But so for example, we have a parking team, a welcoming team, a greeter team. We have a um, a free grocery store where we feed 500 people per month in a few weeks we're going to make 100,000 meals in one day. And so people will sign up. So what I would say is this, is what we've learned at our church is when people sign up to serve, that's a big deal. So making sure, number one, you're clear in what you're asking people to do. Number two, you're prepared to prepare them to do what you're asking them to do. And number three, celebrate them for what they do. Because Ephesians 4.12 says to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Now, for Latter-day Saints, you need to know that us evangelicals, Protestants call ourselves saints too, because the Bible says that every follower of Jesus is a saint. And that word saint comes from a Greek word, hagios, which means holy or set apart. We have been set apart by the blood of Jesus to be a part of his church. And so our sainthood is not found in what we do, but it's found in what the blood of Jesus has done for us. And so we will call ourselves saints as well. But Really making sure you're clear in what you're asking people to do. You're prepared to, to equip them and then celebrate them to do that. But I do think what LDS context does with servanthood is a good thing. The level of expertise can be helpful as well. Yeah. 
Anything come to mind as far as the dynamic of motivating the volunteers or or leading the volunteers or the servant leaders there? Yeah. Because, yeah, what comes to mind with that? Yeah. So, I think underlying that aspect is this. As Americans, we live in a culture that's very individualistic. We say things like, my freedom, my rights. Mm. Oftentimes, that'll turn into my selfishness and what I want to do. Then you tie that into a consumer understanding my job is to take and Mm. consume versus what can I give. The greatest motivation of all is always going to be, think about how much Jesus loves you. Think about his sacrifice for you. Think about his mercy. Think about his kindness. Think about his goodness. And then think about others who don't have his kindness, who don't have his goodness, who don't know his mercy. And so when you serve in preschool or middle school, or when you serve on the hospitality team, the parking team, when you serve, what you're doing is you're becoming a bridge so others can walk across to meet the Jesus that you love. And so at our church, We don't teach 10% tithing. What we teach is what's called generosity. We believe the generosity of God should go beyond just 10% because a lot of times you don't even have to pray, okay, here's 10%, I'm done, versus going, man, maybe this month God wants me to give 20%. Second Corinthians 9, 8 says, or 8, 9 says, no, it's 9, 8. For you know the grace of God, though he was rich, became poor for your sake. So that's speaking of the incarnation. God the Son becomes a man to rescue us, redeem us for our sake. So everything that we do is in response to his grace. Uh, One of the, I don't know if Latter-day Saints do this as much anymore, but back in the day, they would go, well, you know, you Protestants just just believe in grace and and not works. I'm like, what are you you talking about? (laughs) Like, no, we're saved by grace, but grace produces works. Yeah. But my works is not what means God gives me grace. And so kind of the areas where I would challenge my Latter-day Saint friends lovingly is Second Nephi 25-23 says, you're saved by grace after all you can do. So one time I was in an LDS Sunday school class and the topic of grace came up. I quoted that scripture and I uh-huh. said to the class, how do you know when you've done enough? And at first it was silent. And then people, there was spiritual anxiety, like, how do I know? How do I know? How do I know? And one guy said, well, the Lord will tell you when you know. And uh, I just basically said, you know, as a nun Latter-day Saint, I know what enough is because Jesus is my enough. Mm-hmm. I'm holding on to his coattails. It's only by his blood. It's only by his grace. And the motivation to live a life where I choose the right is because he chose me with grace. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And, and I think there is this temptation of, you know, when it comes to motivation and with volunteers, you don't have those levers of like the, you know, the yearly bonus or the salaries or, or whatnot, but to, you almost want to get them running away from hell rather than running towards Jesus's love, right? You want to yeah. scare them into, into action rather than and, loving them into action. Yeah. And we should never fear. First John 4, 18 says, perfect love casts out all fear. Our motivation yeah. should never be fear. Amen. And you know what the you know what the motivation is, my friend? The motivation is seeing people one day discover the grace of God. Yes. That's yes. the motivation. The motivation is seeing a person who was on the verge of suicide say, I want to live because I met Jesus. Yes. The 
the motivation is, man, this family was on the edge of divorce, but they met Jesus. And the motivation is this. 2 Corinthians 5.14 says, for the love of Christ compels me, for we believe that he died. He died therefore for all. And we're compelled by this, this mission. We tell our church, which is, I don't know, 11, 12,000, maybe more. We say, listen, every one of us is a missionary. Being a missionary is not something you do. Being a missionary is our identity, that you're at your job, you're at your school, not just for an education, not just for a paycheck, but to be the living presence of Jesus and to be hope to the hopeless, like you are a missionary. And it's been pretty cool to see how our people have reached a lot of folks by that understanding. So our motivation should always be love. Yeah, absolutely. Totally agree. Tell me about what's the dynamic like between you as the pastor and the the congregation as far as, you know, is it similar to being a bishop where if somebody's struggling with sin or something, they'll come to you and talk to you about it? Or are you mainly focused on the next sermon or, or how does that dynamic work? Yeah, yeah. So let me give what's called an ecclesiological understanding from a Protestant's perspective. Okay. is So we believe that the Greek words that describe church leadership Bishop, overseer are both Greek understandings. Shepherd and pastor, elder are more Hebrew understanding. But what it stands for is a qualified man of integrity, gospel character to shepherd the the staff. Now, obviously, if it was just me by by myself, there's no way I could care for that many human beings. So the way it works is is there's other pastors on our staff, there's other ministry leaders on our staff, and then we have what's called Transformation Church Care Ministries, which is an entire team, and that deals with financial well-being, that deals with mental health well-being, that deals with crisis, that deals with benevolence. And so we also have a team of counselors, and so my role is to make sure I'm equipping the equippers. Now, I will and still do counsel people and as a part of it, but if it was just me by myself, I would be dead. So we, <laughs> yeah. so we have an infrastructure where we're caring and shepherding for our people. And then the first line of defense is we have like, you know how like you guys have a, a family home evening, which I think is genius. Mm-hmm. So what we have is we call those small groups, our transformation groups. So in our transformation groups, you'll have leaders and co-leaders of the group to teach the gospel, but also to be that first line of care. So we want to care for each other first in those small groups. And if it's beyond the small groups, then you go to our transformation church care team. And if it's beyond that, then we get you professional specialists. Nice. And what do you like? Uh, I'm always intrigued. I, I ask this question a lot, like when, when I interview therapists, as far as what they're seeing, like what what problems are people bringing up in their office oh, and whatnot. Like, man. if someone asks you as a pastor, what are the big things that weigh on the the minds and, and hearts of your congregation? Okay, so there's a couple things, right? So I want to look at it from a external dimension first, and then get okay. to the root: anxiety, depression, comparison. Mm. fatigue, trauma, right? So we're seeing a lot of that, but internally, 
Scripture says that every human being that's born is born spiritually dead. Ephesians 2, 1. That's why we need to be born again. <laughs> and because we're born spiritually dead, we develop habits and hangups and brokenness as we progress through life. And so a part of shepherding people, number one, is to introduce them to Jesus. And number two, to help them grow through the Holy Spirit's power. But this includes therapy. This includes counseling. But ultimately, though, we need more people that study scripture. If I can lovingly exhort and encourage your LDS audience, read the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Read them slowly. Read them prayerfully. Get to know Jesus. So one of the things of being a Protestant is we're kind of like rebels. Me, Jesus, and my Bible, right? (laughs) And I want to encourage like, there's not a priest that we have to go through to get to Jesus. There's not another man I have to go through to get to Christ. The scripture says the veil has been torn down. Like we can go directly to Jesus. Now, the body of Christ being a part of the church matters deeply. But as a Protestant, I don't believe the church is an institution or denomination. I believe it's people all around the world who have been born again through the grace of God. And yeah, we meet in small communities all around the world. But what makes us the church is not the name of our community, but the blood of Jesus. Mm -hmm. Nice. Man, that done something to my heart right there, bro. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. I love it. (laughs) I love it. And so what does that look like in specific in the personal lives? I mean, because the big thing like, you know, bishops are always losing sleep over those struggling with pornography you know, with uh, just social media and sort of youth that feel disconnected with reality in general, let alone Jesus, you know, yeah. anything, any other specific examples come to mind? Oh, yeah. Like if you're a bishop and or if you're a pastor, you're there because you love people. Mm-hmm. And when people hurt, you hurt. And so the older I've gotten and the more I've walked with Jesus, I have to learn that I can't carry people's hurts. I have to carry people's hurts to Jesus. Because I will over-internalize, then I myself will get hurt. I myself will get stuck. So I'm learning how to have compassion without having compassion fatigue. Mm. But I couldn't sleep the other night thinking about stuff. Yeah, pornography is a huge issue and it's easily accessible. But let me say this, though. When people dive into pornography, it's not a sex problem they have. The problem is a worship problem. I'm believing that pornography and sexual release can do for more for me than what Jesus can do for me. Mm. Secondly, I think what we do as it pertains to our thoughts, because your thoughts determine your feelings, your feelings determine your actions. A lot of people think like, okay, I'm not going to think about this. I'm not going to think about this. And all you do is think about the things you say you're not going (laughs) to think about. So true. Yeah. So what I've learned to do and what I teach our people to do is when temptation comes, don't go, I'm going to fight temptation. Take a step back and go, man, I'm loved by Jesus. I'm forgiven by Jesus. Jesus is merciful. Jesus is kind. Jesus is good, right? Now notice, I'm not talking about a church institution. I'm not talking about a man prophet. I'm talking about Jesus. Can no man help me but Jesus, right? Mm -hmm. And so- That's where I would encourage people to go to is don't fight those things. Allow Christ to fight for you. Well, let me ask you this question. Give me, you know, one thing I love about the the Protestant tradition is just the 
the sermons, you know, and in, in the latter state world, you know, we, we share the, the love of the, the lectern and let people stand up. And sometimes that's a really interesting thing. And sometimes it's a really interesting thing, right? But give us, give us like your crash course on giving a sermon about the gospel, about Jesus. Yeah. Okay. So funny story right here. So uh, my <laughs> wife's family actually immigrated from Denmark with Latter-day Saints. Oh, cool. Yep. So there's like this whole history here thing. And so my wife's sister is a Latter-day Saint. So I've been going to, oh man, I've been going to Latter-day Saint services for years. Yeah. And um, what's the communion service? What, what is it? What is it called? Sacrament meeting. Sacrament meeting. Yeah. Ooh, sacrament meetings are next level, man. You got kids <laughs> running around, people falling out. And um, I think that's one of the areas where with Protestants, when someone gets up into the pulpit, it is uh, like that's a sacred, sacred moment. So mm. we believe that the preaching of the gospel, that's what Jesus did. That's what his apostles did. That teaching is really important. So for me as a preacher and a teacher, the number one premise is this, is God, how do I, number one, teach what the scriptures are saying? Number two, we believe that all of the Bible testifies to Jesus. John 5, 39 and 40, Jesus says all the scriptures point to him. And number three is when you're preaching a sermon, it's not just about information, like here's data. It's actually about transformation. Mm. And the only way you can be transformed is to explain and invite people into the supernatural work of Jesus Christ. Now, here's what I love. First Corinthians chapter three, around verses like like uh, first first Corinthians three, like sixth grade or something. And basically, Paul says, uh, "I planted, but Apollos watered. The one who plants." And waters is nothing but God who gives the increase. So when I preach and teach, the Holy Spirit does a supernatural thing that I have no control over. So you know, so you know what that means? I can never boast. I can't get too high. I can't get too low. My focus is like, God, you're going to take these words and you're going to do things in people's lives that are way beyond me. So that takes the pressure off. Hmm. But also, I need to be study. That's why I have a doctorate in the New Testament. The words that I say are going to affect people. So therefore, as First Timothy 4 says, I want to be prepared in season and out of season to teach and preach the word of God. So what I would say to my LDS friends is, hey, listen to my messages. I'm not saying you got to be me, right. but if you stand up at a sacrament meeting, boring people to death is a sin. Hmm. Like the Someone word, had to say it. You said it. I love it. <laughs> the, the word of God and what Jesus does is not boring mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. Jesus is not boring. His word is not boring. To be boring is not more holy than to be excited. Yeah, because no. you can't feel like, oh, we're being reverent, right? We're, we're having the solemn uh, tone, but you can't. Well, and, that doesn't mean you have to be boring, right? And I think that's where... Some of our traditions get in way of scripture is solemn. Like, where do you find that in the Bible? Like, 
When you read the book of Revelation of the new heavens and new earth, it says every nation, tribe, and tongue sing holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. Like, how do you tell someone from Africa who's used to like passionate and well, that's being unholy because you're not like us white Europeans. Like <laughs> that that's not the sign. Yeah. Man, if you if you go to Israel, you see Jewish people partying, man. I mean, they'd be singing their little songs and dancing like There's going to be a lot of joy and a lot of happiness in the kingdom of God. Yeah. Matter of fact, that's what Romans 14, 17 says, that the kingdom of God is like joy, happiness, and righteousness in the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Awesome. Any other uh, sermon-related insights, or is that that a good intro course? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, what what I would say say is, if you want to learn, I would welcome people to check out transformationchurch.tc. That's where I preach at. Mm Mm-hmm. Don't try to be me, but if the bishop asks you to do like a 15-minute testimony time, like really share a testimony. Now, what I'm about to say, I, I know it's personal and I don't want it to be a thing of shame, right? Mm-hmm. But a lot of times when I hear my Latter-day Saint friends share their testimony, it kind of goes like, they'll say a few words and they'll go, and I testify to Joe Smith's a prophet that the Book of Mormon is true. I'm like, well, what did Jesus do for you, bro? Yeah. Like, I mean, can you tell us what Jesus has done? Can you talk to us about his mercy, his kindness, his grace? Can you talk about his tenderness? Yeah. And how he's, uh, where has he stepped into your life? And what was that like? Because it is a transformational experience when, when Jesus is there, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Really helpful. Tell me about Vicky and and her role, uh, you know, just in your church and whatnot, because she's not necessarily a pastor and, but. She's on stage with you a lot. She's preaching with yep. you a lot. And uh, I'm just thinking many, you know, bishops or men, you know, we have a, a male priesthood. And so sometimes the wives get lost in the shuffle. So I'm curious what we can learn from your experience of, you know, involving Vicky in your ministry and having a ministry together and, and what that looks like. Yeah. So the first thing is I'll say it's our ministry. Vicky is the co-founder of Transformation Church. Vicky oversees spiritual formation and discipleship. She's on what's called our executive leadership team. And so Vicky is an executive ministry director. She shepherds and she leads people. So within the Protestant tradition, there are denominations that believe women can have the title of pastor or elder or bishop or overseer. At Transformation Church, we believe that men have the office of elder, pastor, bishop, overseer. Mm -hmm. But we believe that women have a vital ministry role, just like a husband has a role, a wife has the role, they're co-equal, co-heirs. So for us, we're not as much into titles, but we're more into function. And so she leads men, she preaches, she teaches. Our church would not be what it is without the incredible godly women leaders that we have. My wife is working on her master's in ministry leadership. We have uh, another female leader that's working on her doctorate, another one that's working on her master's in theology. And so let me just say this, and this may not be an LDS debate, but it's certainly a Protestant debate, Mm -hmm. is my theology, and I only speak for myself, informs me that to be the lead bishop or oversee a pastor doesn't mean I'm telling people what to do. Yeah, Jesus says, the Gentiles lord leadership. It's not to be that way with you. 
as the lead bishop overseer, pastor, my job is to serve the congregation, to serve our staff, and where there are gifts, where there are capacities to lead, you utilize that. And so women preach and teach at Transformation Church. And, you know, obviously with a church like the Latter-day Saint Church, I mean, you, you guys have a president that, or a prophet that dictates what you do. I just know there's a lot of capable women that are godly who are not allowed to use their gifting and the church is the worst for it. But at Transformation Church, we unleash the gifts of our w- w- women. Vicki's an incredible strategist. She's an incredible thinker. She's an incredible prayer w- w- warrior, incredible leader. She really knows how to develop people spiritually. And uh, man, she's phenomenal. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I have uh, maybe a couple more questions for you, but I'm curious if there's any other topic or principle in the context of leadership that you want to make sure we we hit on before we wrap up. Yeah. So I think at times we get our leadership model more from the culture than for Christ. Mm-hmm. So I'll give this illustration from the Bible. Jesus has been with his disciples for three years. He's explaining to them, hey, you know, the miracles I did, all that is leading to validate that I am the Messiah. Hey, guys, I'm about to die for the sins of the world. And you know what the sons of thunder do? That's John and his brother. They get their mother to come to Jesus and say, hey, in your kingdom, can my son sit at your right hand and at your left hand? And Jesus, in essence, says, listen, they cannot drink the cup that I'm about to drink. Cup means wrath in the Old Testament. So Jesus had modeled servant leadership. He had modeled humility. And these jokers are jockeying for position. Mm. So leadership isn't, let me get in position so I can tell people what to do. Leadership is let me get in position so I can become what I want others to be. Wow, that's powerful. Man, I love that. So much to think about. And then I, I wanted to maybe hit on where we, we began with uh, BYU football. I really appreciate it. As I follow you online, you're, you're still a, a raging fan of, of BYU football and you're always encouraging and you spoke to the team recently and whatnot. Anything say just about your, your fandom of, of BYU football? You know, so, so what I would say is I believe football has the capacity to change people's lives, right? There's so much you can learn about teamwork, discipline dedication, sacrifice. And those are the type of things that helps you become a healthy contributing member of society. And of course, I want to see BYU win, but I want to see other young men like myself who came from a tough environment, go to a school to get a world-class education, create relationships, and be able to make an impact. And so, I would say I'm not a fan. Like I kind of see myself as like a a, uh, a mentor to the BYU football players and team. Like there's a lot of recruiting that I do behind the scenes that no one will ever know about. Oh, cool. Which I relish that. When a place has changed your life, you want to give back. And that's all yeah. I'm doing. Love it. Well, we appreciate it for sure. And uh, we look forward to a, a new era in BYU football. So it'll be fun to watch. The, before I ask my last question, if people do want to find out more about your books and your your ministry and, and watch your, your sermons, where would you send them? Just go to DerwinLGray.com. DerwinLGray.com. Cool. 
Well, thank you, uh, Pastor Derwin, and and I, I look forward to continue to learn from you as I uh, watch your sermons and read your books and and listen to other interviews that you do. The last question I have for you, as you reflect back on your time as a leader in your church, how has being a leader helped you become a better follower of Jesus Christ? <laughs> Here's the deal. I can only embody what others to become if I'm constantly abiding and receiving life from Christ. The day I divorce my leadership from the life and power and mercy of Jesus, I'm no longer leading. And so woe unto me if that day ever happens. But my desire in my heart is to allow him to shake me into the kind of person that's worth following. That concludes this episode of the Leading Saints podcast. We'd love to hear from you about your questions or thoughts or comments. You can either leave a comment on the uh, post related to this episode at leadingsaints.org or go to leadingsaints.org slash contact and send us your perspective or questions. If there's other episodes or topics you'd like to hear on the Leading Saints podcast, go to leadingsaints.org slash contact and share with us the information there. And we would love for you to share this with any individual you think this would apply to, especially maybe individuals in your ward council or other leaders that you may know who would really appreciate the perspectives that we discussed. Remember, up your teaching game by listening to the David Farnsworth presentation by visiting leadingsaints.org slash 14. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the declaration was made concerning the own and only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness, the loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.